Welcome to the Every Woman Book Club. I'm Rebecca Lewis and I'll be your host for this series, introducing you to a fresh new bookshelf packed with inspirational, thought-provoking and challenging new titles. In each podcast, I'll be unravelling the details with our authors, exploring their themes and how they relate to women in the workplace and the wider world. We'll also be giving you a chance to put your own questions to each of our authors in live Q&As streamed regularly on the Every Woman Network. So keep an eye on everywoman.com slash book club for invitations to this exclusive content. Now, on to my guest for today, Professor Deborah Grunfeld, author of Acting with Power. A leading social psychologist, she has taught courses on power and leadership at Stanford Graduate School of Business for nearly 20 years. She says we all have more power than we realise, and what counts is not how much we have, but what we do with it, even if what we're really doing is acting. Like actors, we all make choices about how we play our various power roles, and we can all become more successful and the best possible versions of ourselves in any role, on any stage, in this theatre of life. It's intriguing stuff. Welcome, Professor Grunfeld from sunny California. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. No, no, thank you. And I have to admit, I struggled a little bit to whittle the book down to those few lines of introduction because it really is absolutely packed with with data, with studies, but also your personal anecdotes about power. Because like I say, you've been studying this for over two decades. So I'm wondering why this book now? Why did the time feel right? It does cover a lot of ground, and I think, you know, it's, it's actually very hard to write a book on power, even though I've been thinking about it for such a long time, because it is such a central organizing force in all of human life. And um, I think, you know, over the years doing research on power, most of my, um, my research in the lab has looked at when and why people use power badly. And I think that's been the narrative for such a long time. We, you know, think of power as a dirty word. We, um, you know, tend to imagine, um, you know, kind of corrupt power holders, you know, using all their leverage to, you know, self-enhance and and, um, serve their own interests. And I just think that those ideas about power have a kind of reinforcing quality to them. They create norms and expectations that perpetuate, I think, the worst aspects of what power is like. So I just thought, you know, it's it's time for some new ideas about power. It's the dark side of power is just one aspect of how power operates in social life. And what I really wanted to do was to write a book about power that would change the narrative about power and make the idea of having power and using power more attractive to a wider range of people and um, to help people get in touch with the, the leverage that they have in their lives so they can use it better for good. Hmm. But you confess, though, that you haven't always been comfortable with your own power, of course. even while <laughs> you've been teaching MBA students and you know coaching these high-profile leaders. But it was a light bulb moment for you when you had some training with an actor and you realized that it was about playing a role better. So tell me a bit more about that. What I realized when I started taking acting classes and working with actors and directors is that, you know, 
the beautiful thing about roles, which is which you know, which come with power and status, is that they define who we are to other people and they define our responsibilities to other people. And I think when we think of power in the absence of roles, like in the absence of being a parent or being, you know, a leader or being um, a teacher or being the, the boss or the head of a country, if you think of power in the absence of those roles, it just looks like a way to get more for yourself. But once you can see it as part of a system that's designed to advance, you know, group causes, um, and once you can see your power as coming with responsibilities and you know, specific expectations about how to behave, you realize when you start to see power as part of a role that it's, it's, it's expected of you and that using your power is a generous act. Um, and we've all been in those situations where the person in charge doesn't take the reins and it creates anxiety and insecurity for everyone, tends to bring out the worst in people. When there's a power vacuum at the top, everyone else fights to get up there. Um, and I just realized, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's to own my power and authority and to use it in a way that makes life better for the rest of my community or my classroom or my family is really the most generous thing I can do. So, yeah, it really changed everything for me. And you mentioned bosses there, and I think it's fair to say you've had some awful boss experiences in terms of how <laughs> they've used their power. The one, I mean, the one who flossed his teeth during your one-to-one. Yeah. Um, yeah. The one who made you dive into a swimming pool to retrieve yeah. a stick that he'd just thrown in. Yes. But you, you still insist that we all have more power, even in our relationship with our boss, than we might realize. So yes. for anyone listening who's in a professional relationship, where they just feel like all the power lies with the other party, so the boss or a, another leader, how would you convince them of that? So for, you know, the, the subordinate who has a difficult boss, I think we experience fear in the presence of very powerful people. And, um, and it leads us to lose sight of the fact that we are also powerful in our relationships. I mean, one of the things that I think is so interesting when you think about it is that if you think of your boss as as holding all the cards and yourself as someone who's completely dependent on them, you miss the truth of the situation, which is that um, all of our relationships only work when they fulfill both parties' needs. And so what that means is that even your boss, even the person who has the power to evaluate you and decide your pay and whether you get promoted and can, you know, give you annoying, um, uh, tasks or whatever, that person is also dependent on you and that gives you power in the relationship. So, you know, we often act as though we have no choices when we're dealing with a difficult boss. But in fact, we often have more power than we think we do, um, especially to the extent that we might have options to that one relationship. So if, if we can make ourselves irreplaceable. We have a lot more power with our bosses than we think we do. Um, and if we have options and can leave and you know seek employment elsewhere, this also gives us leverage. Interesting. Okay, so you, you mentioned dependence there. Um, so I'm an only child, but I'm a mother of two quite young children who 
probably shouldn't admit this, but they have far more power over me than is probably healthy. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated <laughs> by... <laughs> is it? Good. Um, I'm Absolutely. fascinated <laughs> by this idea of how birth order and childhood experiences can impact our relationship with power as adults. Um, and you, you touch on this in the book and you write that we need to put our inner children to bed in order to use our power more appropriately. Can you tell me a bit more about that? The comment you made about your children is the perfect example of why, um, why you know, the people in the individuals in a low power role in a relationship are not powerless. I mean, we, as parents have the need to, um, we want our children to survive. We also want our children to validate our competence as parents. And so we end up not using all the power we have because they have power over us. There are at least two different ways to use power. There are people who use it to satisfy, you know, selfish interests. And there are people who use it to advance solve other people's problems, let's say. Um, and there's been a lot of research that's trying to identify which kinds of people are more likely to use power in more and less pro-social ways. And there's an interesting finding, which is that birth order affects how responsible people are when in positions of power. So some of these studies have looked at um, United States presidents, for example, and found that firstborn children tend to use power in adulthood more responsibly um, with less corruption and less scandal than only children or the youngest children in families. And the idea, yeah. And the idea is that when you're the firstborn child, um, you learn, you're socialized at a very young age to be aware of, of other people's needs and to recognize that your needs don't always come first. So, you know, as a firstborn, um, as a firstborn child or an oldest sibling, you you know can't go to the park because the baby's taking a nap, or you have to wait your turn because the two-year-old is having a tantrum. And you learn from a very young age that part of what comes with being the more capable, more competent family member, the more powerful member in some ways. Part of what comes with that is the ability to put other people's needs first, to, to take care of people who are more vulnerable than you are. So people have argued that, you know, when you grow up in a system, knowing from a very young age that your privileged position as the more powerful person makes you responsible for the care of people who are more vulnerable than you are, that that translates into the way we use power in adulthood. And what I think very interesting about that, too, is that um, the studies show that although men and women um, are, are equally interested in power, women are also less likely to use power in corrupt and selfish ways than men are. So women are a safer bet often um, when it comes to putting people in positions of power. And the argument is the same as the one we just made for for birth order, which is that um, women are also typically socialized. They grow up learning from a younger age that their job is to put others first and take care of other people. And that this sense of responsibility um, is internalized at a younger age for women. And that just makes them more responsible with power. And you mentioned um, presidents there. Um, I have to ask now, do we know um, what 
or birth order President Trump came in in his family? Oh my gosh, you know what? Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we know what the theory would predict, let's put it that way. Yes, yes, exactly. So you mentioned there about female leaders, and, and I wanted to talk about imposter syndrome, um, because we know it's something a lot of women suffer with, not just women, but it does seem to resonate particularly with women. And the conventional advice about overcoming imposter syndrome has been fake it until you make it. But you kind of reframe this in your book. You, you call imposter syndrome a sort of stage fright, and you describe it as the anxiety we feel in the gap between the role we know we should be playing and how we really feel about ourselves. So I'm curious if faking it isn't the answer, then then what is the, the solution for overcoming imposter syndrome? It's a huge source of angst in almost every professional person that I've met. Um, and it tends to strike, especially when we're transitioning into a bigger role. You know, there's this idea, again, that you you have a sense of yourself as, as maybe capable in your current station in life, maybe, maybe capable, maybe not, but the idea of, of moving on to a bigger stage, um, having more power, being viewed as more important, as more expert. Um, the key to overcoming all of these subconscious um, kind of ticks that we have because we worry about how we're being evaluated is to very purposefully move our attention off of ourselves. Worrying about whether you're being authentic or coming across authentic is just a conversation that you're having with yourself. You know, it's like you, could I do that? Would I do that? I can't believe I just did that. People must know I didn't mean that. You know, it's like this conversation that you have with yourself. You're kind of stuck in your head. You know, instead of worrying about whether you're being authentic or not, try to see yourself through others' eyes. Try to, you know, consider whether, you know, whether you feel like a big shot or not. In reality, the people around you may very well see you that way. And so the best way to overcome imposter syndrome is to acknowledge that and to do your best to live up to their expectations. And it's amazing because once you can shift your attention off of yourself and focus on whether you're taking care of the people around you and making sure that they feel secure and showing up in a way that says like, yes, I'm the person in charge. I'm the expert in the room. Um, I've got this. Makes it much easier for them to just relax and do their jobs as well. Mm, That's great advice. And a big part of the book is you talking about how we play our power up, which is when we are trying to be the biggest person in the room, the loudest person um, with all of the power. And then there's playing our power down, which is maybe when we're being more collaborative or we're using our power in a more understated way. Um, interrupting people is an example of how you can play your power up. And we all know how that feels. It doesn't feel good mm-hmm. when someone is talking over <laughs> us in meetings. Um, right. And you get asked about this a lot um, for advice on how you can handle it. And your advice on this is really interesting. And it's called, you call it the perspective shift. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, there, there are two kind of knee-jerk reactions that we have to, to being interrupted or talked over. One is to immediately back off um, and, you know, avoid having a fight for airtime, which I think is not a bad approach in many situations. 
Um, the other is to raise our voices and to try to, you know, shout out or drown out, drown out the other person or kind of win the battle for who can be the loudest and, and maintain the floor. And that's a risky strategy too, because, because often people who interrupt us are not interested in backing off. So, <laughs> so things escalate and you just don't know if you can win that contest. Again, it's like going back to dealing with your children. You have to pick your battles <laughs> and you, you know, you, you never know if you're going to win. And I think that's, it's the same in organizational life. Most power contests are won and lost in the nonverbal arena. And so there are options to, to going silent or shouting that I think can be much more powerful. I often advise people when they're being interrupted to just um, raise their hand, not like as in, not like raising your hand in a classroom, but <laughs> sort of yeah. so raising your hand sort of toward the person who's interrupting you as if to say, um, stop, or, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not finished. And it's amazing to me how a nonverbal gesture, like letting your hand leave your body will often shut people down immediately. Somehow it's unexpected. It's a little bit aggressive, but it's not, it, it's not over the top. So, so I often advise people to, to go with a nonverbal route. There's a second part of this, which I, which I think is so important. Um, and it really has to do with whether you're most likely to win this type of battle when you're trying to protect your own right to speak versus making a point of making sure that other people have the right to speak and to finish speaking. So you always earn status and other people's respect when you protect someone else's rights. You know, if someone else is being talked over and you can say, can you just wait a minute? I wanted to, I wanted to hear what she was yeah. saying. Mm-hmm. Um, you always win points for that. I think people trust others who will use their own social capital to protect someone else much more than those who take risks to, the, to defend themselves. Yeah, absolutely. If someone who interrupts is allowed to interrupt, they'll keep interrupting. Yeah. But if you can stop someone from interrupting someone else, you may shut the whole thing down so that you're not in the same, you know, you're not in the same position of having to defend yourself as well. So, yeah, I think if you look at how power works, like out in the natural world, in humans, but also in animal groups, what you can see is that power has a social purpose. It's not allocated to specific individuals so that they can advance their own interests. I mean, we give people power by deferring to them. And we do it in hopes that they'll use those privileges and advantages to protect all of us. So I think it's just really important for people to think of power in that way, which is that, you know, again, it's the best way to use power, the best way to feel powerful, the best way to advance your own standing is to take personal risks to protect other people. But you talked about deferring there. And obviously, sometimes we have to say no. Um, and saying no to someone who on the surface has more power than us, like a boss or a manager, that can be really hard to do. Um, you say, you write that you've learned to say no in many languages, which I'm, I'm loving the sound of this. Tell me a bit more about that, the ways that you can say no. Sure. I mean, you know, it's um, 
I have to confess, and it's probably obvious, you know, you don't get to a place where you're studying power for your whole life and writing books about it if these have not been huge challenges for you. So, so yeah, I mean, these are all things that I've learned. None of this came naturally to me. So I guess a couple things. One is that um, you know, I, I advise particularly young women that I work with to develop a kind of a practice to dealing with um, with requests and invitations, which is to never respond immediately in the moment um, because there's often too much pressure, especially in a situation where you feel like you're, you have less power and less status than the person who's who's making the request is to say, you know, um, let me just think about that and I'll get back to you so you can kind of get your wits about you and make decisions about whether you actually want to agree or not, which is sometimes hard to know in the moment. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that I think we often are fearful of saying no because we think it's going to come across unfriendly and alienate people or be hostile or, or somehow too sort of assertive maybe. I, I think the thing that I've come around to is that it's possible to say no in a very friendly way <laughs> and, and, you know, in a way that protects your boundaries and protects your right to make decisions for yourself about what you're willing to do and not willing to do, but you can do it in a way that doesn't have to be overly aggressive. So, you know, I find often that I'll say to people, you know, I'm, you know, you know that I love you and you know that I love to work with you, but um, I'm not going to say yes to this one. So I find it easier personally to say no when I'm, making an effort to um, just remind the person that I'm disappointing, that I, that I care about them and I care about the relationship. You know, I, I remind them of those things at the same time, but then very unapologetically without leaving room for discussion, tell them that I'm not interested. I like that without leaving room for discussion. Yeah, we definitely need to work on that one. Um, yeah. I love this idea about joining a posse. Um, about creating power in numbers as a way to create change. Obviously, the Me Too movement is a great example of this. Was it as powerful as it could have been, or how could it have been more powerful? You know, I think on the plus side, um, there has been a moment where things have shifted to the extent that it's not considered acceptable to make unwanted sexual advances toward, um, toward women who have less power than you do at work. I, I, think it's, I think it's hard to look back and remember that there was a time when that was just business as usual. Um, and I think that's you know, a big part of what made it difficult for people to, to speak up about it. And I do feel like that's changed. I do feel that you know, many of the men that I talk with about this are more self-aware, um, more careful, more, you know, interested and curious actually about where the boundaries are. You know, I think, um, so I, so I do think that that's changed and I think that that's a very good development in order for these systems to really change. Um, there has to be more women in power. I mean, it's just, it's just, I think, you know, a fact of life. 
And because of all of the history and the stereotypes and the implicit bias against women and, um, you know, the tendency to see power in men more naturally than in women, which I think is also a bias and an error, the only way to get more women into positions of power, I believe, is for the rest of us to make that happen and anybody who cares about it. So people elevate people into positions of power. It, it, it has to, but it's a force that comes from underneath um, or from above. It's not just like a person propels themselves forward. And for women especially, you know, I just think it's very important to recognize that the stereotypes about women, the barriers that women face in terms of getting ahead in their organizations, these things can't change until we see women as uh, capable of holding power and wielding power in the same ways that men do. And the only way to make that happen is to channel some of our efforts toward helping other women advance. Mm. Because you talk about how we've almost typecast leaders as these very masculine, very dominant figures, which is almost a self-fulfilling thing. Because if that's how we imagine leaders should be, then those are the kind of leaders that we will make our leaders. Um, And the end of your book is almost like a a rally cry for us to really change that and and do exactly what you've just said, enable more women to fit that mold. Um, You talk about a more caring and responsible, nurturing type of power. Um, Before we finish, I I wanted to ask you something about the, the current situation that we're in, because you write that when people use power well, it doesn't make news. And I guess your point there is that we're we're much more likely to hear about abuses of power than we are about the, the more positive side. And I just wonder if that perspective has shifted slightly in, in terms of the, the COVID-19 crisis. We're seeing a lot of discussion about what effective leadership is, and female political leaders in particular are getting a lot of really positive analysis about how they're handling the situation. I wonder what your observations have been around all of that and whether that might help us as a society to evolve our understanding of, of power and what it can be. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I do think it's a really interesting moment for paying attention to how power works and what the options are. Um, and I, you know, based on what I said earlier in terms of knowing that women tend to think of power more um, in a pro-social way, like as a responsibility to take care of other people um, than men do on average, according to the research. It shouldn't surprise us that these are the leaders who are coming into the forefront right now. And it is a very different model. It's like, you know, there are people who approach power as like a prize or an accomplishment or some type of indicator of their value as people. And so they'll, you know, push as hard as they can to get ahead as quickly as they can and be in the spotlight as much as they possibly can. There are people who think of power more as a duty. And I think that these women during this crisis are examples of this type of thing, which is that they're kind of toiling in the background. You know, they're the kinds of leaders that make sure bad things don't happen. We never see them. <laughs> Just back, back in the background, making sure that, it's, you know, that things are running well, that, you know, that workplaces are safe, that 
countries are safe, that you know decisions are being made that take the greatest interests of the greatest number into account. So we don't hear about it. Um, but in this moment, because it's been such an interesting time to just be able to contrast how in response to the same pandemic and the same crisis, different leaders have approached it differently. And with any, with any luck, it will, you know, it will have an impact um, going forward on, on how we think about what are the necessary requirements, the requisites, you know, when we're thinking about putting a person in a, in a position of power with a ton of responsibility, what kinds of qualities and characteristics are we looking for? But you can see in, in this context in the pandemic how important it is to be a person who knows how to use power responsibly and who is maybe a little more risk-averse potentially, um, who, who thinks first maybe not about how their decisions are going to affect their political viability, but how their decisions are going to affect the livelihood of the people who depend on them. Absolutely. I think that's a perfect and very thought-provoking place to leave our conversation today. So thank you, Professor Grunfeld, for joining us. It's been fascinating and best of luck with the book. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Every Woman Book Club. If you're not already a member of the Every Woman Network, you can join today to accept your invitation to take part in our live online Q&As, where you can put your own questions to our authors from wherever you are in the world. Membership of the Every Woman Network also gives you access to tons of content designed to help you advance your career, from webinars and podcasts with inspirational female role models, to workbooks, quizzes, and lots more. Visit everywoman.com slash network to begin your journey today. Music